All right, so our scripture for today is the book of John, chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to be with you. Oh, man, it was so good to be out in the water. The weather was perfect. My dad, who uh, just had us out on the water growing up as a kid, I, I think we can call him a sailor, uh, is over there in Albany, which is the East Bay, right next to Berkeley. could see the whole bay. And he texted me afterwards. He said, you guys were out on the best weather day of the year so far. So I was like, thank you, Lord. It's wonderful to be out there. Hope you guys had a good time. Those of you guys who were able to join us, um, really excited to get into this new series with you today. We're calling Knowing God uh, because we live in a very, uh, we live in a culture that is obsessed with self-knowledge, it seems to me. Not that this is all bad, but knowing self is a very important thing to us as a culture. I imagine if you were to look at your news feed, you might be like me, inundated with all these self-help articles. I wonder how many of you have done any number of personality tests, you know, maybe even before you started this job where you're at now. Uh, you know, I, for, for even in the church startup world, uh, Cindy and I had to do, I, I lost track of how many personality tests we had to do. We had to do DISC. We had to do Myers-Briggs, of course. We had to do uh, cultural index, Enneagram. Uh, there's, there's an animal one. I don't even know what you call that, but I just, I think it actually, it might be actually be the animal personality test. But there's just all these things, all these tools that are helpful to know about self, to know self. And that can be a very good thing. It's a very helpful, important thing. But what the Bible teaches us is that most important of all is knowing God. It's knowing God. I mean, think of it this way, just, just for starters. If we were made in his image, to know him is to know more about ourselves. To know more about who he's created us to be. But also knowing God is something that can ground us in life unlike anything else. Uh, the gospel or good news of Jesus is that you and I can know God personally. Uh, not that we just can know about God, but we can know him personally. That's the essence of Christianity. That's what it's all about. That's, that's priority. That's from which everything else flows. So let's do a little bit of a, a thought exercise. Uh, for those of you guys who pray, uh, what would you say you're most often praying about? Right? Like what, maybe you're in the midst of something right now and you're, you're praying especially over something in particular. What do you most pray about? I think it's almost certain that most Americans pray for things like success, blessing, provision, deliverance, uh, thing, things like that, maybe power, maybe courage, strength, something to get, get through. But if you were to analyze some of the greatest prayers of the Bible, you would find that so many of them are not prayers for joy, power, success, provision, blessing, whatever it is. In other words, so many of the prayers in the scriptures are nothing like the prayers we so often are praying for ourselves. But rather, what so many of the great prayers in the scriptures are about are for 
personal knowledge. We just finished up a series in Ephesians not too long ago, and some of you might remember, for instance, prayers there like in Ephesians 1, where Paul prays for the Ephesians saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And then in Ephesians 3, he prays, I pray that you might know the love of God. When, what the Bible says is that we tend to be obsessed about our needs, our problems, our intellectual questions. Uh, in other words, knowing, knowing ourselves, but the real problem is we don't know God personally. When the, the, the real problem is we don't know him well enough personally. Uh, knowing God is the, is the antidote. It's, it's what can ground us no matter what we face in life. Think of it this way. Have you ever like kind of worked on a little knot ball? You have this, you know, this knot with all these strands and you're trying to work away to try to, to break it loose, set it free or whatever the case may be. And you're, you're pulling on all the strands. There's all these strands. You're pulling, you're pulling. And oftentimes you're pulling on these strands and you're not only not helping, it's actually making things a little bit worse. But then there's this one strand and you might often not even know which particular strand it is, but when you pull on that strand, everything just all of a sudden just falls together. All of sudden, everything just frees up. The Bible teaches us that knowing God and knowing God more deeply is that strand. But so often we go through life pulling all these different strands in our own strength, by our own means solely, and we're not really getting anywhere. We're just kind of stuck but the scriptures say if we can just know God more fully, we can, we can unlock, we can, we can be set free from a lot of things that we, we face in life that are, that are holding us back. The ancient King David, a guy who, by the way, was described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart, famously prayed this, one thing I ask, Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I mean, that's about as poetically beautiful as you can put it to say, I want to know you, Lord. And he goes on to say, for, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Uh, that's what the series is about, is that when we know God, everything else begins to fall in place. When we know him more deeply, things fall into place all the more for us. So what we're going to do in this series is look at different aspects of God, mostly from the Old Testament. I always try to use the summer months to get into the Old Testament a little bit more, so we're going to do that kind of double, double whammy there, uh, to, to learn more about God and different attributes, aspects of him, knowing more about who he is. So we're going to look at how he's the God of grace, God of holiness, glory, justice. He's the God who calls. He's the God of rest. That's next week. Uh, a very near and dear friend, uh, Will Moraza from Epic Church will be down preaching that. If you've been here for Will, he's, he's wonderful. You're not going to want to miss that. But today, as we kick things off, we're going to get to the heart of it all because the text before us, uh, in the text before us, Jesus makes strikingly clear to know Jesus the Son is to know God the Father. Jesus is the absolute perfect uh, representation of God. And so if we can know God, if we can know Jesus the Son, we can know God. And so what we're going to consider today is how Jesus makes God the Father known to us and, and why that matters. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, it's, it's so good to gather together and to get into your word. Uh, Lord, as, as we pray often, today is because of and for you. Uh, so today, would you help us just center our hearts and minds on you? Lord, of course, we bring our, 
our anxieties, our worries, our, the different things that we carry, and we know you care very much about them. Lord, would you help us hold those today loosely as we, as we look to get to know you, and maybe for the first time, or maybe uh, for the many time, but, but more deeply today. I pray that you would help us with your spirit in all this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we pick up today in John chapter 14 in what Bible scholars tell us, uh, describe as the upper room discourse. So this is literally just hours before Jesus would be arrested and ultimately taken to be crucified on, on the cross. And so as such, Jesus is trying to make the most of this very uh, intimate time with his disciples, his main students. He knows it's coming that night, and so he wants to impart with them some very important truths. And it's in that moment, with that sense of urgency, with that sense of intimacy kind of in the air, that Philip, one of Jesus' main disciples, uh, asks him a, a question that he's just been thinking about. He figures, okay, here's my opportunity to ask this question. He, he, he says it more as a, as, a, as a statement, but you hear the question behind it. In verse 8, he says, Lord, Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to leave. And Philip is like, well, wait, wait, before that happens, if that happens, I don't even understand fully, but like, if we're going to go there, help me understand. Would you show us the Father? Can you show us the Father? It's a wonderful question. Jesus had been teaching and preaching with them for years who the Father is, what the Father's about. And so Philip is just like, man, okay, in this moment, I want to know, can you, can you show him to us? Now, listen here to Jesus, in Jesus' response to the tone in which he kind of shares. Okay, he, he replies, and obviously we're not back there with them, and you know, we only have the words before us, but I, I think we can hear the tone in which Jesus kind of replies. I wonder, if, I wonder if you hear it with me. Jesus replied, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? It's almost as if the words are singing Jesus a little bit when Philip says, would you show us the Father? And you ask to see the Father, but Philip, don't you see me? I mean, it's kind of this interesting exchange. And it actually starts to get us into what we've been, what we've been saying here. We, Jesus is saying we get to know God, and not just about him, but to know him personally. So notice a few things just from this one little statement when Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? First of all, look at, look at the word he uses. He says, to know me. Now, in English, we can use this word to mean a few things. But this particular Greek word means personable, personal knowledge. It's actually, it's, it's knowledge that is, that is generally uh, understood through experience. It's, it's, it's knowledge, it's personal knowledge only imparted really through time and togetherness. So Jesus is saying, when he says, don't you know me, Philip? He's saying, haven't you been with me? Don't you like know my heart, my mind, as you ask about the Father? And then also notice that he says, don't you know me, Philip? He calls Philip by name. This is not some abstract conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. It's very personal. He's, Philip has his heart and mind that he's trying to figure out something and see if, God, if Jesus would just make known the Father to him. And Jesus is calling him by name. Don't you, don't you know me, Philip? And of course, the wonderful implication here, mind-boggling implication for us today is that's the same way Jesus knows us today. He calls us by name, calls you and me by name. 
It's very personal. Uh, there's a psalm my dad had us memorize uh, as kids. Uh, growing up, we do it around the dinner table. And it's Psalm uh, 8. It's very beautiful. But there's a verse in there that, that has always really resonated with me, all the way back then till, till today. It's Psalm 8, verse 4. That says, uh, the psalmist says, What is mankind that you, God, are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Psalm 8 is a very beautiful psalm. It's about the, the majesty of God, how he's created the heavens, the earth, and life, and all that. And then right in the middle of it, the psalmist has this thought where he just is kind of taken aback. He's like, in the midst of all your majesty, God, who are we that you are, that you are even mindful of us? Let alone that you care for us. It's as if he's kind of raising the thought of, oh my goodness, we don't even deserve existence let alone that you care for us, that you think about us. And what the scriptures teach us is that God not only thinks about us, cares for us, but he lavishes his care, his thoughts, his love on you and me. Psalm 138 puts it this way. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. All of this is teaching what Jesus is making far more even personal in this conversation with Philip is that God not only has made you, in me. He has made you and me to be in a personal relationship with himself. And there's an invitation that we would receive that and cultivate that. But there's a question along with that. Will we? Okay, you can know God, most of all through Jesus, but, but how? Jesus shows us at least two ways in this, in this text. First, we can know God by Jesus' words. Okay, so how, how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, the words I say to you. I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father. So we, we can know God the Father through Jesus' words. Now, of course, we don't have the luxury Philip and the other disciples had in that day, where they had had the opportunity of walking around with Jesus for essentially about three years, more or less 24-7, out and about, around the Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem, all that sort of thing, audibly hearing Jesus' words. That'd been pretty cool. We don't have that. But what we do have are Jesus' words, many of them preserved for us. And what Jesus is saying is, by his words, we can understand the heart and the mind of God the Father. Now, one objection that will be raised that we probably should address here real quickly is, is well, wait a minute. If you're just going to point to Jesus' words in the Bible, you got to help me understand how is that, how is that credible? You know, you, the, the scriptures need to be authentic for you to point to the scriptures to say, well, the scripture's pointing to itself. Are you, are you tracking that, that logic? Um, first of all, when it comes to the credibility and authenticity, uh, authenticity of the scriptures, we actually have so much corroborating evidence that say that the words that Jesus spoke here are actually his words. So much corroborating evidence. And no evidence to the other side saying that he actually didn't say these things. A lot of people will say to me, oh, you know, a religious group got together and decided, well, this is what Jesus said, or let's put these words, or this would be nice. There's no evidence for that, but there's a ton of evidence pointing to the fact that these are actually his words. I mean, to the tune of way more evidence corroborating Jesus' words, actually being them, than, so, than, than all of the other ancient texts that we look at in classes today. They're studied around the world and not really batted an eye off saying, it's, is it credible or authentic? Okay, so that's one thing that could be said. But secondly, let's say, you know what? Let's say there's no corroborating evidence at all. Okay, let's just go ahead and go with that. What we can still know is we can just look at his words to understand, do they resonate? Do they jive? Do they 
makes sense. For, for Jesus' words, as they're recorded, do, are they enough to, to resonate and start to think, oh, I can understand what he's saying. I can, I can get at what he's saying, to, even to the point of understanding God's heart and mind through his words? And the answer to me is that's a resounding yes. I, was, uh, I came across, I think it was a YouTube video or something, of a psychologist doing a treatment on Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount. So you can find this, these words, this sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. I thought it was really interesting because I've generally only heard scriptural uh, talks from preachers, right? People kind of speaking from, you know, kind of a very Christian perspective. This psychologist, from, from all I can tell, is not a Christian. He was just looking at this text. And one of the things that he said is that the words of Jesus in the Sermon of, of the Mount are otherworldly. And what he meant by that was these are not conclusions. These are, these are not teachings, this, this, this famous preaching that Jesus has here, not conclusions, not teachings that we in ourselves would just conclude on our own let alone in our fallen human estate. Uh, what, what did he mean by that? Well, take, for instance, the very famous teaching, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If you start to think about that teaching, you might think, oh, that's kind of nice. But if you think about it a little bit further, you, you, you realize that on the surface, that makes no sense. I mean, think about it personally. Like, do you have any enemies or even kind of in the remote, you know, vicinity of an enemy? Like, would you want to love them? Like, oh, okay. Doesn't make any sense. But the psychologist was saying, oh my goodness, like, there's no other way. Think about it in the political sphere right now. I don't know about you guys. So I study politics. Like, one of the things I quickly decided is I didn't want to go the political route. And that's partly what I felt then and only feel more today. And that is politics is just going crazy. I mean, it's just increasingly so. The right, the left, we're not only not having conversations anymore, we're like slinging mud, to put it mildly at each other. I mean, literally name-calling. You know what the next layer of name-calling, actually, we're already seeing this too? It's throwing fists. My point is, all we're doing and all we're seeing is we're just going spiraling down and down and down. What's the antidote? Love your enemy. It's the only way that breaks that spiral. Now, I don't want to suggest that, okay, now if you love your enemy, you could just figure that out. It'll be really easy and you can just knock it out. It'll be really easy. I'm not trying to suggest that. But what other way is there? Again, when I was studying uh, politics, I came across this book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's an interesting read. In this book, the author uh, looked at a number of revolts and revolutions throughout uh, human history. And they kind of looked at groups, people who were oppressed, oppressed people groups, and how they rose up and took power from from their oppressors. Right? That was kind of the study. And what he found in virtually every instance of, this, of these cases is the oppressed group, when they actually did manage to rise up and t- overthrow their oppressors, what did they end up doing? But replacing the oppressors and becoming oppressors themselves. Now, on the surface, you can go, well, that makes sense. Those other guys were bad. And you can think of a lot of examples of that real quickly, right? Like, well, it's their turn. The problem with that is it just repeats the cycle. Give it some time, and it, it, what's the antidote? We are called not just to love our enemies. We're called to lay down our lives. Now, does that mean just let the oppressors, and, and to keep with that terminology, let them do their thing? No. We're, in that same very same sermon, he says, hunger for righteousness. Seek justice. But do it in a way where you're loving your enemy. You're laying down your life. Again, that's not to say it's easy to figure out or easy to pull off. 
This is the only way to break the cycle. Or think about Jesus' famous teaching, be humble. We like to say in our culture today, humility is a virtue. That, that's almost certainly Jesus' influence because when Jesus said it in the Greco-Roman world, humility was not a virtue at all. It was, it was looked down upon. It was looked as a sign of weakness. Be humble. Everybody would have just sneered at that. You gotta be kidding me when Jesus said that. And today we might like say, okay, that's a wonderful value. It's a virtue of ours. But really, functionally speaking, do you think that makes a lot of sense? In some senses, it doesn't. You know, to like defer credit, to, you know, kind of step out of the line or whatever it might be, however you want to like think of humility. On the surface, that doesn't make sense. Have you ever read uh, Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great? How, uh, what separates great companies from good companies? I forget the subtitle is, but have you, have you ever read that book? It's, it's a fascinating read. And it's all about Jim Collins and his team of researchers looking at empirical data empirical data to try to understand what separates great companies from, from good companies. And they were clear to say there's some outliers, there's some exceptions, but at one point they're like, oh my goodness. It's like, it, it, it seems counterintuitive to us. It's not what we were expecting to find, but so many of the great companies are led by humble people. Can you believe it? Now, of course, there's outliers, and we can all think of a few, but there's like, but if you look at the data, if you look at the companies, if you, it's like so many are actually led by humble leaders, people who are looking to lift up their teammates, who are not so much, you know, so personally ambitious that they're not looking for the sake of the company. They have ambitions, not say they don't have, and, and, and Collins and team are like, I, we can't believe it. Can you believe it? It's like, that's what the data's showing. But we can't believe that. Jesus said, be humble. He said, in other places, when you are humble, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying, this is how I've made you. If you're made in, in my image, I've, I've called you to not just pat yourself on the back, pump out your own chest. I've, I've called you to be humble, look to care for those around you and deflect credit and how can this be? Well, John 14 is saying, Jesus is saying, you can know God by my words, by the words of the scripture. They point to who he is. And ultimately, because of who he is, we can understand more of who we are, how he's made us to be. You can know God by Jesus' words. So here's a low-hanging uh, fruit of a question in terms of when we start to think about well, what does this mean for us, okay? The, the low-hanging fruit of a question is, are you reading Jesus' words? because we have them available to us. And man, I didn't bring my phone up. I could put my phone up. I mean, it's, it's incredible how we have them available to us. Just read Jesus' words. Are you, are you reading them? Because as you read them, as you read the scriptures, it's not just an exercise for those of you who are Christian, you've committed to reading the scriptures as you can. It's not just an exercise to be encouraged or to find help, which by the way, it does. It's first and foremost an opportunity for you and me to learn more about our Heavenly Father, His heart, His mind for, for you and for me. So, for instance, this last week I was reading this story where this guy, this man, this dad came to find Jesus. He was facing some really trying circumstances in his life, and he approached Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, and he says, hey, if you can help me. And Jesus says, if I can help you. God, like everything's possible for, for those who, who believe and the guy says, very famously, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that was enough for Jesus to heal. 
I love that because Jesus was saying, if we, if we wrestle with what that scripture text, one of the things that it teaches us is, yes, God calls. He's looking for faith. He calls us to faith. He's looking for faith. He wants faith. In other words, that we trust him. But he's also okay when our faith is far from perfect. He can work with that. And I don't know about you, that is really encouraging to me. <laughs> because my faith, more often than not, is far from perfect. We learn about God's heart and his, his mind through the text. Or, or, or for instance, you can read places where, where Jesus famously said words about marriage. This dictum that we say, that all often, I say at every wedding that I officiate. Uh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You know that was Jesus' dictum based on the Old Testament text? Like Jesus was talking, that was Jesus adding those words to what it says in, the, in Genesis uh, 2 when it says they will leave and cleave, they leave father and mother to be united and, and married together. Jesus says, let wh- whoever God has joined together, let, let no person separate. So these, these are wonderful words. You can just read that and be like, oh, that's, that's nice. But you can start to think, well, what does that tell you about God's heart and his mind for me? So for those of you who are struggling in marriage right now, which by the way, statistically speaking, is many of you. And as a pastor who loves you and is in it with you, by the way, is many, okay? When, when you read a text, when Jesus says about marriage, whoever God has joined together, let no person separate, you can know, let's say when you're tempted, you start to think, oh, did I make, make a wrong choice? back then I mess up was I you can know that it actually wasn't even you who brought yourselves together it's God who joined together which means by implication he's going to be with you he's going to walk with you through we can learn about God's heart and his mind through these wonderful words that Jesus has given us but second we can know God by Jesus' works Don't you believe, Philip, that I am in the Father, verse 10 says, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. We can know God, Jesus is saying, by his works. Some of my favorite stories recorded for us in the gospel accounts, the biographical accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus' life and ministry, are those when the blind, the lame, the leprous came up to Jesus, and maybe he was even in the middle of like some, you know, teaching event with the crowd, and Jesus would just stop everything he was doing and focus his infinite attention very personally on that person. I just love that. You know, John, who, whose gospel we're in today, John 14, Upper Room Discourse, where we're looking at Jesus' words here, uh, went on to write, write some letters to the early church. John, history tells us, is the only disciple uh, who was not martyred for his faith. All the others, history tells us, were, were killed uh, because they were telling people about this risen Lord. Uh, John was the only one, history tells us, was exiled for his faith. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, martyred, he was, he was exiled. Which meant he had a lot of time, or at least more time than the other guys, to really think about these things, to mull them over, just reflect on them. And uh, you know what? When you read John's accounts, you, you get a little bit more of that, boy, I'm thinking about barbecue right now, like marinade. <laughs> He's been thinking about things. Especially when you get to his letters. It's incredible. When you get to his letters, you just see some just really profound and amazing things that he says. Let's see if I can get to it quickly. Um, he starts one of his letters by saying this, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You know what John is doing there? After years of reflecting on his experience, his unique experience, he's like, I'm starting to finally get it. Like in a way that in the upper room discourse, I didn't get it. Philip didn't get it. None of us got it. And that is, while we understood a little bit about Jesus, we had no idea that we were in the presence of the great I am. We got to literally see him with our own eyes. We got to, we got to touch him. And so we get to read stories with that vantage point, if, if you will enter in with that perspective. And so it's like, you know, I love these stories. Like the, the blind guy would come up to Jesus. Jesus, son of, son of David, have mercy on me. And, you know, he's blind. He's trying to figure out. And Jesus said, what do you want? I want to see. It's okay. And, you know, there's some times where Jesus would, interestingly enough, like pick up some dirt, spit on it, put it on the dude's eyes. Now, we like to joke. I think most of us are joking when we say this. It's like, I, I met a celebrity. I shook their hand. I'm not going to wash my hand again. Boy, we're not going to joke that way after the pandemic. No one's saying update our yeah anyways in all seriousness though like think about being that i would this is okay i'm gonna go all meta here for a second it would how much of an honor would it be to have been that blind man blind privileged to have been blind in order to have experienced the son of god spit and place his hands on your eyeballs it's like you think about it from that perspective we get to know Jesus and the, the, and the God, the Father, through his works. Or you read stories about like when the leprous came, these folks with infectious diseases, no cure for it, no treatment. They were just kind of like cast aside in the leprous colonies. They came, approached Jesus. Jesus didn't go, oh, I got to get out of here. But he walked towards them. Or you read stories like the woman caught in adultery, placed right in front of Jesus. And Jesus not only fends off these would-be condemners of hers, goes on to say to her, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So we see through Jesus' acts and then coupled with his words that the heart and, the, and mind of God is to call us into a holy life, to, to live the life he calls us to, to turn back to him. But even as, as, we, as, as we do and miss and miss the mark, he extends love and forgiveness and grace when people ask me as a pastor, how, how do I read the Bible? How can I read the Bible? I'll typically, you know, depending on what, what exactly they're asking, I'll kind of share, okay, first you obviously got to find a place to start. If you've never read the Bible before, a good place to start is the New Testament. Just pick one of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's. Can't go wrong with that. Read about Jesus directly. For those of you who've read in the past, maybe you want to get back on that horse, so to speak. What I encourage you to do is find a Bible plan. These are awesome. The day and age we live, you can use a phone. They're free, and they can just kind of direct you through. I usually try to find a Bible plan that's both Old Testament and New and throws in a psalm. So if you're like in one of these texts where it's like, oh boy, it's all these rules and stuff like that, you're going to get a psalm. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. The rules are good too, but... I'm just saying, you can do that. But anyways, you find something where you're like, okay, I can read that. Maybe it's a chapter. Maybe it's a couple paragraphs. But when people ask me, how do I read the Bible? I, I, I encourage them, I encourage you to ask two questions. Because we don't want to just read it, okay? So, well, I, want you, I, I encourage, them, encourage you to ask two questions. The first one, which we'll focus on here, is what do you learn about God from that text? Second question is, what, what, what do you think from this text he's calling us to do or... or, or respond? How is he calling us to live? But the first question is important. I didn't do this for many years in my own kind of personal reading. What do you learn about God from that text? Because here's the interesting thing. 
the scriptures ultimately aren't about you or me. There's a lot in them that help us and they're there. It's there to help us, but ultimately the scriptures are about him. And so as we read these texts, let alone the manifestation of Jesus in these stories, we get to learn about God's heart and his mind for us. It's incredible. What do we learn about God as we read? Because to the extent we look to him and look to learn more about him, his heart, his mind for us, is to the extent that we will be grounded to face anything in this life. Realize that in this context, just words before with Philip and the other disciples, John, the others, he's, getting, he's saying, hey, you know me so you can know the Father. Right before that, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm getting ready to leave, but don't let your hearts be troubled. You're getting ready to go through some stuff, followers of mine. And that's real, because as followers of Jesus, there's no like false promise in the scriptures of, hey, if you start to follow him, things are going to go better for you. Not that's not necessarily true. In some cases, it actually gets harder. He says that. But he says, you don't have to let your hearts be troubled. And one of the greatest, excuse me, the greatest ways you and I can ground ourselves when we face troubling parts of life is to know him personally or to know him more deeply personally. It can ground us like anything else. Why? Because he's our God. He's our father, our provider, our forgiver, our deliverer our truth, our peace, our guide, our counselor. And he's not just these, just these things, he's these things for us. So the extent we get to know him and more deeply is the extent we'll be able to face hard things and get through. But you know, there's actually something really cool that I'd never noticed before uh, this week in my study, that there's one more thing that Jesus actually says, okay, if you really want to know Jesus, if you really want to know God, you need to know this. Because if you look back in verse uh, seven here, I've never seen, I never really noticed this before, but he, Jesus said, if you really know me, you know my father as well. From now on, he says, that's the phrase I want to key in on. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's really interesting because in a way, Jesus has just been saying, if you've been listening to me, my words, if you've been seeing my works, you know God, the father. But Jesus now is saying, there's a moment here where now you will know him fully. You'll get the full dose. Everything will be made clear. What, what is he talking about? He's saying, there's all these scriptures that you can read about and learn about God. Learn that he wants to actually love you personally. You don't have to wait for Jesus to know that about him. There's all this scripture that tells him about Jesus. But there's one thing from now on, Jesus says, that you will, okay, you will now fully know God the Father. And of course, what was he referring to? He was referring to the fact that he's going to the cross. The greatest embodiment of who God is, is the Son. The greatest embodying act of who God is, is the Son's death on the cross for you and me. I mean, you think about that. There's so many wonderful things we can know about God that we sing about on Sunday mornings. How he's created us, how he's with us, how he walks with us through. But Jesus and God the Father want you and me to know that the greatest single way we can know who God is, his heart, his mind, is look to Jesus on the cross. There's a reason why the scriptures say, let us run the race with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Life is a marathon race. It's hard. It's got its challenges. But you can fix your eyes on Jesus because when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you fix your eyes on the one who made you, loved you, died for you. 
And so I would say today, if you're here, you've never received Jesus, that's the gospel. That's literally the good news, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine. That when you receive what he did for you and that God the Father raised him again in the third life, you will have a restored relationship with him. That's the promise. That's everything, essentially. Everything flows from that. We give you opportunity today to do that as we take communion. It's something we receive in our hearts, but you can act that out as we take communion today. And for those of you who have received him, my prayer for you is that your prayer would be to get to know God more, to know him more deeply, personal, or as we said in Ephesians 1, to be enlightened to know the hope for which he's called you, to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. Because life is hard. God is with you and he's for you. He won't abandon you. He's going to be with you. I mean, even to the tune of helping you understand that you can trust this because he sent his son. Right, let's pray. Fathers, we come now to the table, so to speak, uh, to take communion. Uh, we thank you for the greatest expression of who you are and your love for us. And really, any love imaginable. We can't even, we wouldn't even be able to imagine it. But the greatest expression of your love for us is not only that you sent your son to make yourself fully known to us through words and works, but the greatest work was him laying down his life that we can have life in him. So this is what we remember today as we take communion. As he said moments before the text that we just read today, we do this in remembrance of him. They took communion up in that upper room. Lord, we, we continue to do that today in remembrance of you, your body broken, your blood shed, that we can have forgiveness in the name of Jesus. So Father, prepare our hearts as we take communion today. Lord, where we've sinned, we confess it to you. At the same time, we receive your forgiveness, your grace that you lavish upon us. Lord, who is mankind that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for. But you died for us. We love you. Would you help us know you more? And we, would you help us make you know? We pray this in Jesus.